continue to saunter through the journals of Henry David Thoreau. He would like it the way he sauntered around Concord. Huh? We're sauntering through by reading the best of the selected journals of Henry David Thoreau. In 18, now we come to 1853. Hmm. Though, not though, not through, though, or through the good, or through, or through the good offices of Greeley, Putnam's Monthly Magazine ran three extracts from Thoreau's writing about his visit to Canada. The Boston publisher, Munro, sent to the author 706 unsold copies of The Week. Uh-oh. Remember he wrote A Week on the Merrimack and something river, and it didn't sell well. The author announced firmly in his journal that he was the better for his ex this experience. Thoreau made another trip into the Maine woods. His journal during 1853 has a generous amplitude to it, but science symbolized by the Latin names for things plays an increasing role and philosophy grows the less. So, do you think that philosophy will have less philosophy now? Hmm. I thought we liked when Thoreau was philosophical. January 7th, about 10 minutes before 10 a.m., I heard a very loud sound of, and felt a violent jar which made the house rock and the loose articles on my table rattle, which I knew must be either a powder mill blown up or an earthquake not knowing, but another, or more violent, might take place, I immediately ran downstairs. But I saw from the door a vast expanding column of whitish smoke rising in the west, directly over the powder mills four miles south, four miles distant. It was unfolding its volumes above, which made it widest there. In three or four minutes it had all risen and spread itself into a lengthening, somewhat uh, copper-colored cloud parallel with the horizon from north to south, and about ten minutes after the explosion that passed over my head, being several miles along from north to south and distinctly dark and smoky toward the north, not nearly so high as the, uh, as the few Siri in the sky. I jumped into a man's wagon and rode towards the mills. In a few minutes more, I saw behind me, far in the east, a faint Salmon-colored cloud carrying the news of the explosion to the sea and perchance over the head of the absent proprietor. 
arrived probably before half past ten. There were perhaps thirty or forty wagons there. The Colonel of Mill had blown up first and killed three men who were in it and said to be turning a roller with a chisel. In three seconds after, one of the mixing houses exploded. The Colonel House was swept away in fragments mostly, but a foot or two in length were strewn over the hills and meadows as if sown for the thirty rods and the slight snow that on the ground was for the most part melted away around. The mixing house, about ten rods west, was not so completely dispersed for most of the machinery remained a total wreck. The press house, about twelve rods east, had two-thirds of its boards off and, uh, and a mixing house next westward from that which blew up had awesome boards on the east side. The boards fell out, in other words, of those buildings which did not blow up, the air within apparently rushing out to fill the vacuum occasioned by the explosions, and so the powder being bared, but who the fury particles in the air and other building explodes. Goodness. The powder on the floor of the barred press house was six inches deep in some places, and the crowd was thoughtlessly going into it. A few windows were broken thirty or forty rods off timber, six inches square, eighteen feet long, were thrown over a hill, eighty feet high at least, a dozen rods. Thirty rods was about the limit of fragments. Thirty rods is pretty far. The drawing house in which was a fire was perhaps twenty-five rods distant and escaped. Every timber and piece of wood which was blown up was as black as if it had been dyed, except where it had broken on falling. Other breakages were completely concealed by the color. I mistook what had been iron hoops in the woods for leather straps. Some of the clothes of the men were in the tops of the trees, where undoubtedly their bodies had been and left them. The bodies were naked and black, and some limbs and bowels here and there, and the head at a distance from its trunk, the feet were bare, the hair singed to a crisp. I felt the powder, I smelt the powder. Half a mile before I got there, but the different buildings, thirty rods apart, and then but one will blow up at any time. Goodness. Is this what happens when you make gunpowder? God. March 5th. The Secretary of the Association for the Advancement of Science request me, as he probably has thousands of others, by a printed circular letter from Washington the other day to fill the blank against certain questions, among which the most important one was what branch of science. I was specially interested in using the term science in the most comprehensive sense possible. Then, though I could state to a select view, that Department of Human Inquiry, which engages me and should be rejoiced at an opportunity to do so, I felt that it would be to make myself the laughing stock of the scientific community, 
to describe or attempt to describe to them the branch of science which specially interests me, inasmuch as they do not believe in a science which deals with the higher laws. What is this science, dear? What is the science of the higher law? So I was obliged to speak to their condition and describe to them that poor part of me, which alone they can understand. The fact is, I am a mystic, a transcendentalist, and a natural philosopher to boot. That's what the theme for this reading. <laughs> it's famous. Uh, he's famous. Uh, this is what I put as a bumper sticker on my car. <laughs> the fact is, I am a mystic, a transcendentalist, and a natural philosopher to boot. Now I think of it. I should have told them at once that I was a transcendentalist. That would have been the shortest way of telling them that they would not understand my explanations. How absurd that though I probably stand as near to nature as any of them, and am by construction, constitution, as good an observer as most, yet a true account of my relation to nature should excite their ridicule only. If it had been the secretary of an association of which Plato or Aristotle was the president, I should not have hesitated to describe my studies at once and particularly. So he's okay with Plato <laughs> if he was the president. <laughs> what do you think? March 10th. This is the first really spring day. The sun is brightly reflected from all surfaces, and the north side of the street begins to be a little more passable to foot travelers. You do not think it necessary to button up your coat. March 12th. It is essential that a man confine himself to pursuits, a scholar, for instance to studies, which lie next to and conduce to his life. Do you think we should study something that's conducive of life? Does that mean just any old science or the science of mysticism? <laughs> which lie next to and conduce to his life, which do not go against the grain, either to of his will or his imagination. The scholar finds in his experience some studies to be most fertile and radiant with light, others dry, barren, and dark. If he is wise, he will not persevere in the last, as a plant in a cellar will strive towards the light. Should we strive towards the light or just pursue dry, barren stuff? <laughs> He will confine the observations of his mind as closely as possible to the experience or life of his senses. His thought must live with and be inspired with the life of the body. 
the deathbed scenes and observations even of the best and wisest afford but a sorry picture of our humanity. Some men endeavor to live a constrained life, to subject their whole lives to their wills, as he who said he would give a sign if he were conscious after his head was cut off, but he gave no sign, dwell as near as possible to the channel in which your life flows. I think we should dwell as near as possible to the channel in which your life flows. A man may associate with such companions, he may pursue such employments as will darken the day for him. Men choose darkness rather than light. March 15th, there were fewer colder nights last winter than the last. The wind water in the flower stand containing my pet tortoise froze solid, completely in enveloping him, though I had a fire in my chamber all the evening, also that in my pale, pretty thick. But the tortoise, having been thawed out on the stove, leaving the impression of his back shell in the ice, was even more lively than ever. His efforts at first had been to get under his chip, as if to go into the mud. Today the weather is severely and remarkably cold. It is not easy to keep warm in the chamber. I have not taken a more blistering walk the past winter than this afternoon. It must be cold on March 15th. <laughs> March 21. It is a congenial and reassuring day. The mere warmth of the west wind amounts almost to balminess. The softness of the air mollifies our own dry and congealed substance. I sit down by a wall to see if I can muse again. We become, as it were, pliant and duck. Ductile again to strange but memorable influences, we are led a little way by our genius. We are affected like the earth and yield to the elemental tenderness. Winter breaks up within us. The frost is coming out of us. Do you think that we'll unfreeze when March comes? <laughs> and I am heaved like the road. Accumulated masses of ice and snow dissolve and thoughts like a freshet pour down unwanted channels. Do we have unwanted channels? W-O-N-T, unwanted channels. A strain of music comes to solace the traveler over earth's downs and dignify his chagrins. The petty men whom he meets are the shadows of grandeur to come. Roads lead else with else whither. Roads lead else whither. Then to Carlisle and Sudbury. The earth is uninhabited, but fair to inhabit like the old Carlisle road. Is then the road so rough that it should be neglected? Not only narrow, but rough is the way that leadeth to life everlasting. Is the road to not only narrow but rough?
is the way that leadeth to life everlasting. You think that's true, but it's rough? Probably. The way into everlasting life is rough. Our experience does not wear us upon us. It is seen to be fabulous or symbolical, and the future is worth expecting. Encouraged, I set out once more to climb the mountain of the earth. For my steps are symbolical steps, and in all my walking, I have not reached the top of the earth yet. <laughs> Seems he's not just climbing a mountain, he's walking to the very top of the earth. <laughs> No wonder he walks so much. <laughs> March 22nd. That is an interesting morning when one first uses the warmth of the sun instead of fire. Bathes in the sun as a nun in the river, a skewing fire draws up to a carrot window and warms his thoughts. At nature's great central fire, as does the buzzing fly by his side. <laughs> Like it, too, our muse. Uh, wiping the dust off her long, unused wings goes blundering through the cobweb of criticism. More dusty still. Uh, what venerable cobweb is that? Which has hitherto escaped the broom, whose spider is invisible, but the North American Review, and carries away the half of it. We're going, getting through 1853 here, March 29. Walking along near the edge of the meadow, under Lupine Hill, I slumped through the sod into a muskrat's nest. <laughs> For the sod was only two inches thick over it, which was all enough when it was frozen. I laid it open with my hands. There were three or four channels, or hollowed paths, a rod or more in length. Not merely worn, but more made in the meadow and central centering at the mouth of the sparrow. They were three or four inches deep and finally became indistinct and were lost amid the cranberry vines and grass towards the river. The entrance to the burrow was just at the edge of the inland here, a gently slipping bank and was probably just beneath the surface of the water six inches across ago. Six weeks ago, it was about twenty-five rods dis distant from the true bank of the river. From this, a straight gallery, about six inches in diameter every way, sloped upward above about eight feet into the bank, just beneath the turf. That the end was about a foot higher than the entrance. There was a somewhat circular enlargement, about one foot in rect horizontal diameter, and the same depth with the gallery and it was nearly a peck of coarse meadow stubble showing the marks of the scythe, with which was mixed accidentally a very little of the moss which grew with it. These three short galleries, only three feet long, were continued from the center, somewhat like rays towards the highland, as if they had been prepared in order to be ready for a sudden rise of the water, or had been actually made so far under such an emergency. The nest was, of course, Thoroughly, or thorough, uh, thorough, thoroughly, thoroughly wet, and humanly speaking, uncomfortable. 
though the creature could breathe in it. But it is plain that the muskrat cannot be subject to the toothache. I have no doubt this was made and used last winter, for the grass was as fresh as that in the meadow, except there that it was pulled up, and the sand which had been taken out lay partly in a flattened heap in the meadow, and no grass had sprung up again through it. And that was all about just a muskrat nest. <laughs> April 1. Here ducks, disturbed, make a quacking. Here they're quacking. Quacking or loud croaking. Now at night, the scent of muskrats is very strong in particular localities. Next to the skunk, it is perceived further than that of any other our animals that I must, I think of, I perceive no difference between this and the musk with which ladies scent themselves, <laughs> though here I pronounce it a strong rank odor. In the faint reflected twilight I distinguish one rapidly swimming away from me, leaving a widening ripple behind, and now hear one plunge from some willow or rock, a faint croaking from over the meadow up the abyssabet, exactly like frogs, can it be ducks? They stop when they walk towards them. They stop when I walk towards them. How it how happens it that I never found them in the water when spearing. Now and then when I pass an opening in the trees which line the shore, I am startled by the reflection of some brighter star from a bay. I can remember muskrats, dear. Do you ever... If you don't know muskrats, I remember on the ditch and various places by the river and stuff. I can, I could smell muskrats. <laughs> he said they have a strong odor. You can, when there was a whole muskrat nest, you could smell it probably. Or I. It's like my friend says, uh, sometimes you sound like a farmer. <laughs> he says, sometimes you sound like a farmer. <laughs> August 3rd. No fields are so barren to me as the men of whom I expect everything but get nothing. In their neighborhoods, I experience a painful yearning for society, which cannot be satisfied, for the hate is greater than the love. April 30th, Moses Emerson. Moses Emerson, the kind and gentlemanly, gentlemanly man who assisted and looked after me in Haverhill said, that a good horse was worth seventy-five dollars, and all above was fancy, and that when he saw a man driving a fast horse, he expected he would fail soon. Hmm. Hmm. May 10th. Saw quite near a skunk. 
in a cloud of long, coarse, black and white hair, within a rod and a half, sharply staring at me, with head to the ground, with its black, shining, bead-like eyes. It was at the edge of its hole, its head was so narrow and stout, long and pointed, that it can make those deep holes in the spring. By the way, what makes these innumerable little punctures just through the grass and woodland paths as with a stick? Is this too by the skunk? Have you seen skunks? <laughs> I've seen skunks. <laughs> used to run across the road. Of course you could smell them. <laughs> From the hill I look westward over the landscape. The deciduous woods are in their hoary youth. Every expanding bud swaddled with downy webs. For this more eastern hill, with the whole breath, of the river valley on the west the mountains appear still higher still the width of the blue border is greater not mere peaks or sharp shallow sierra but a high blue table land with broad foundations a deep and solid base or tablet in proportion to the peaks that rest on it as you ascend the near and low hills sink and flatten into the earth no sky is seen behind them and the distant mountains rise, the truly great are distinguished vergers, crest of the waves of earth, which is the highest break at the summit, into granite, granitic, granitic rocks over which the air beats. A part of their hitherto concealed base is seen blue. You see not the domes only, but the body, the facade of these terrene temples. Uh -huh. You see that the foundation answers to the superstructure. Moral structures, the sweet fern leaves among odors now. The successive lines of haze which divide the western landscape deeper and more misty over each invening valley are not yet very dense, yet there is a light atmospheric line along the base of the mountains for their whole length formed by their denser and grosser atmosphere through which we look next the earth which almost melts them into the atmosphere like the content of molten metal with that which is unfused but this pure sub sublimed tops and main body rise palpable land skyland above it like the waving signal of the departing who have already left these shores it will be worth the while to observe carefully the direction and altitude of the mountains from the cliffs. The value of the mountains in the horizon would not that be a good theme for a lecture? The text for a discourse on real values and permanent a sermon on the mount. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are stepping stones to heaven. As the rider has a horse block at his gate by which to mount when we would commencement our pilgrimage to heaven, by which we gradually take our departure from earth from the time when our youthful eyes first rested on them, from their bare actual earth, which has so little of the hue of heaven, they make it easier to die and easier to live. They let us off. It says here, parentheses, with the Alcott, 
Bronson Alcott, the transcendentalist. Almost alone is it possible to put all institutions behind us. Every other man owns some stock in this or that one and will not forget it. Hmm. Now he's talking about... Hmm. The landscape. Uh -huh. hmm. Western landscape. Hmm. <laughs> the direct, the altitude of the mountains, the valley, the mountains and the horizon are the stepping stones to heaven. <laughs> mountains. So I guess that's how you get up to heaven. They are stepping stones to heaven. What are the stepping stones to heaven? It says here it's the mountains in the horizon. So if we just go hiking, <laughs> we can make it to heaven, according to Thoreau. I don't know how thorough he is. <laughs> May 14th. E. Wood has added a pair of ugly wings to his house, a pair of trees and painted white, particularly conspicuous from the river. You might speak of the alar, alar extent of his house, monopolizing so much of our horizon, but alas, it is not formed for flight after all. Uh, now, May 15th, the first cricket chirrup, the first cricket's chirrup, which I have chance to hear, now falls on my ear and makes me forget all else. All else is in a thin and movable crust down to that depth where he resides eternally. He already foretells autumn. How could he foretell autumn in May? <laughs> Deep under the dry border of some rock in this hillside he sits and makes the finest singing of birds outward and insignificant in his own song is so much deeper and more significant. Why is he obsessed with crickets? <laughs> mm -hmm. His voice has set me thinking, philosophizing, moralizing at once. It is not so wildly melodious, but it is wiser, more mature than that of the wood thrust. So who is wiser, the cricket or the wood thrust? <laughs> With the solicitor I see clear through the summer now to autumn, and any summer work seems frivolous. I am disposed to ask this humble bee that hurries humming past so busily if he knows what he is about. At one leap I go from the just open buttercup to the life everlasting. This singer has antedated autumn. His strain is superior in to seasons. It annihilates time and space. The summer is for time servers. How could he do that? The cricket. Huh. Thank goodness. Do you think crickets annihilate time and space? Jeez. Huh. He must be a mystic, like he said. Huh.
May 17th, returning towards Fairhaven, I perceive at Potter's Fence the first whiff of that ineffable fragrance from the Wheeler Meadow, as it were the promise of strawberries, pineapples, and in the aurora aroma of their flowers. So blandly sweet aroma that fitly foreruns the summer and the autumn's most delicious fruits. It would certainly restore all such sick as could be conscious of it. The odors of no garden are to be named with it. It is wafted from the garden of gardens. It appears to blow from the river meadow from the west or southwest, here about forty rods wide or more. If the air here always possessed this bland sweetness, this spot would become famous. <laughs> and be visited by sick and well from all parts of the earth. It would be carried off in bottles and become an article of traffic which kings would strive to monopolize. The air of Elysium cannot be more sweet. So where is the sweet spot? Where is the sweet spot? I'm talking about the sweet spot on May 17th. It says, returning towards Fairhaven, I would perceive at Potter's Fence uh -huh, fragrance from Wheeler's Meadow. So we found the spot. Uh -huh. We can go and smell the fragrance uh -huh. when we go to Concord, that is. May 28th. Mayhu in his Mayhu in his labor, London's labor and London's poor, treating of the costermongers and those who get their living in the streets of London, speaks of the quote the muscular irritability forgotten by continued wandering, unquote, making quote unable to rest for any time on one place, unquote mentions the instance of a girl who had been accustomed to sell sprats in the street, who, having been taken into a gentleman's house out of charity, quote, the pressure of shoes was intolerable to her, unquote, quote, but not sooner, no sooner did she hear from her friends that sprats were again in the market than as if there were some magical influence in the fish, she at once requested to be freed from the confinement and permitted to return to her old calling, unquote. I am perhaps equally accustomed to a roaming field life. The experience of a good deal of that muscular irritability and have a good many friends who let me know when sprats are in the market. <laughs> hmm. Is that a fish, a sprat? <clears throat> you gonna make coffee or are we gonna just make uh, make words? <laughs> May thirty one. We're almost through the year of eighteen fifty three. I mean we're almost halfway through. May thirty one some incidents in my life have seemed far more allegorical than actual. 
They were so significant that they plainly served no other use. That is, I have been more impressed by their allegorical significance and fitness. They have been like myths or passages in a myth, rather than mere incidents or history which have to wait to become significant. Quite in harmony with my subjective philosophy. He's, it's probably subjective philosophy, right? Transcendentalism. <laughs> they would say, the scientists would say, oh, that's... Subjective philosophy. <laughs> Quite in harmony with my suggest subjective philosophy, this, for instance, that when I thought I knew the flowers so well, the beautiful purple azalea or pinster flower should be shown me by the hunter who found it. Such facts are lifted quite above the level of the actual. They are all just such events as my imagination prepares me for, no matter how incredible. Perfectly in keeping with my life and characteristic, ever and anon something will occur which my philosophy has not dreamed of. The limits of the actual are set some thoughts further off. That which had seemed a rigid wall of vast thickness unexpectedly proves a thin and undulating drapery. The boundaries of the actual are no more fixed and rigid than the elasticity of our imaginations. The facts that a rare and beautiful flower which we never saw, perhaps never heard of, for which therefore there was no place in our thoughts, may at length be found in our immediate neighborhood is very suggestive. June 9th. I was amused by the account which Mary, the Irish girl who left us the other day, gave of her experience at blankety blank. The milkman's in the north part of town. She said that twenty-two lodged in the house the first night, including two pigmen. That Mr. Blankety Blank kept ten men, had six children, and a deaf wife and one of the men had his wife with him who helped so, beside taking care of her own child. Also all the cooking and washing for his father and mother who live in another house and whom he is bound to carry through is done in his house, and she, Mary, was the only girl they hired, and the workmen were called up at four by an alarm clock which was set a quarter of an hour ahead of the clock downstairs, and that more than as much ahead of the town clock, she was on her feet from that hour till nine at night. Each man had two pairs of overalls in the wash, and the cans to be scalded were countless. Having got through washing the breakfast dishes by a quarter before twelve, Sunday noon by blankety-blank's time, she left no more to return. He had told her that the work was easy, that girls had lived with him to recover their health, and then went away to be married. God. June 13th, 9 a.m. to Orcus Swamp. 
find that there are two young hawks. One has left the nest and is perched on a small maple seven or eight rods distance. This one appears much smaller than the former one. I am struck by its large naked head, so vulture-like, and the large eyes, as if the vulture were an inferior stage through which the hawk passed. Its feet, too, are large, remarkably developed, by which it holds to its perch securely like an old bird. Before its wings can perform their office, it has a buff breast striped with brown, dark brown brat. When I told him of this nest, said he would have to carry one of his rifles down there. But I told him that I should be sorry to have them killed. I would rather save one of these hawks than have a hundred hens and chickens. Hmm. Would you prefer to save the hawk or have a hens and chickens? I would rather... I would rather save one of these hawks than have a hundred hens and chickens. It would be it was worth more to see them soar, especially now that they are so rare in the landscape it is easy to buy eggs, but not to buy hen hawks. My neighbors would not hesitate to shoot the last pair of hen hawks in the town to save a few of their chickens. But such economy is narrow and groveling. Would you shoot the hawk? Mm-mm. You sure? But I thought you believed in economy. <laughs> you gonna lose your chickens? <laughs> but such economy is narrow and groveling. It is unnecessarily to sacrifice the greater value to the less. I would rather never taste chicken meat nor eggs hen, hen eggs than never see a hawk sailing through the upper air again. This sight is worth incomparably more than a chicken soup or a boiled egg. So we exterminate the deer and substitute the hawk hog. It was amusing to observe the swaying to and fro of the young hawk's head to a counterbalance the gentle motion of the bow in the wind. Hmm. So that's how he feels about the eggs. Uh Hmm. He's not going to eat the chickens. Well, we read about half of up to June 13th of uh, 1853. (laughs) How old is Thoreau now? Let's see, he was born in 1817. Hmm. Now, we read about the sweet spot up in Concord, if we can go there and smell the flowers. And we read about the crickets, uh, why he's listening to the cricket all the time. And if you just, if you just look at the mountains in the horizon, it's like a stepping stone to heaven. And and we read about the muskrats uh, hole. And we read the famous line here of the 
gospel reading is. The fact is, I am a mystic, a transcendentalist, and a natural philosopher to boot. And dwell as near as possible to the channel in which your life flows. So that was all the first half of 1853 and the best of selected journals of Henry David Thoreau.